Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Higdon, Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Law. We will discuss his article, If You Grant It, They Will Come, The History and Enduring Legal Legacy of Migratory Divorce. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm delighted to have you on. Um, as soon as I saw the abstract for this article, I knew that I wanted to interview you about it because it like combines two things that I love and have been thinking about lately: history and and family law um, in a really cool and um, thoughtful and sort of provocative and also like uh, ways that I hadn't really thought of before. Um, so for listeners who maybe are a little bit like me and didn't have a strong idea of what migratory divorce was before hearing from you about it, maybe you could kind of introduce the concept, what it was, and and why it developed in the first place. Sure. Happy, happy to do so. So thank you for those kind words. This has been a project I've been working on for a long time, and in many ways, it's been a labor of love because I've I used to live in Nevada, so I was very much steeped in that that part of their history, and I've always wanted to write about it. So migratory divorce is a phenomenon where someone will go to another jurisdiction and live there long enough to become a resident. And they'll do that simply because this, this the new location has more favorable divorce laws. So once they become a resident there, they will file for divorce. And typically, nine times out of 10, they'll then return to where they were living before, where it would have been much harder, if not impossible, to get a divorce. So you can see examples of that going on around the world. But in the United States, it pretty much existed since the beginning. And the reason it did is because every state had different rules for divorce. Some of them made it very um, difficult indeed. South Carolina, for example, did not allow any divorce until the late 1940s. Um, New York would allow divorce, but only on the grounds of adultery. And I should probably pause there because younger listeners, um, actually even people of my generation, we might think of divorce as a relatively easy thing to do. If you want out of your relationship, you can file for divorce. Well, that's a relatively recent invention. Prior to the 1970s, states had fault-based divorce. So if you wanted to get out of a divorce, you had to prove that the other party committed some type of fault, typically going to a breach of the marital contract. And as I was mentioning a bit earlier, states define that differently. Some would let you out fairly easily and some would not let you out at all. New York, for example, only allowed people out, would allow people to get a divorce for adultery. So if you lived in one of those states and you thought, I really want a divorce, but my state has made it nearly impossible. Pretty soon, some lawyers became very clever and started telling people, well, you know, it'd be really cool if you moved to Indiana because Indiana will give you a divorce quite easily and your spouse doesn't have to go. You can go there, get a divorce and then come home. So that was sort of what migratory divorce was. And I gave Indiana as an example. Um, I, I imagine we might talk in a bit, but various states um, held that title of divorce capital of the United States over the years. And the practice existed pretty much in full force until we got to the advent of no fault divorce. And then people didn't have to go through this sort of formalistic fiction of moving to another state just to get a divorce. 
just initially, it seems like the very fact that some div- some states were so resistant to granting divorces and that there was such a kind of diversity of approaches to thinking about whether, when, and why a divorce could be granted. I mean, what, if anything, does does that say about how states and kind of people in general thought about the marital relationship at that point in time vis-a-vis sort of government interests via individual rights-based interests? Yeah, and that's a great question. And it's one of the fascinating things to to think about because at this point in history, divorce was largely seen as primarily an interest of the state, the state's interest in allowing two people to end their union. And in many ways, we can understand why the state would take a bigger interest in that at that time because um, gender equality was nowhere near on the map at that point, right? So if divorce was permitted too freely, we might have a whole class of people, typically women, who would be left unable to really get an education, to get a job because those opportunities didn't exist. So early on, this was seen primarily as a state interest. We also see the role that religion played, um, and, and we continue to see that, of course, in family law, but we see it quite starkly when we look at how divorce evolved in the early colonies and then the states, because different religions were took um, either more relaxed approaches to it or much stricter approaches to it. Well, so my sense from the paper is that, you know, migratory divorce sort of developed in response to changes in state laws that were either kind of specifically directed toward divorce in the marital relationship, or in some cases, kind of broader laws about state residency and and so on. I mean, to what extent were those state laws sort of intentionally directed at the marital relationship and at encouraging migratory divorce? Or to what extent was it sort of like a catch-as-catch-can happenstance response to facts on the ground? Yeah, it was largely the latter. And this was something that was really interesting. So a lot of states, and I'll use Nevada as an example, because that's the one we we think of the most often. So Nevada in the um, 1870s, when it was going to become a territory, set a six-month residency requirement for the new territory. They were not thinking about divorce at that time. All they were thinking was, we have lots of minors moving here, transient people, and we don't want them to have to wait too long before they can vote in the election. So they they put it at six months. But of course, that residency (laughs) influenced all the other things that someone could do when they come to a state. And that included the ability to get a divorce. So other states did similar. So Indiana at one point was allowing this. Ohio was one of the states. Utah, when it was a territory, the Dakotas. They had these laws of lower residency, but they really didn't calculate the role it was going to play with divorce. Once people, but enterprising lawyers and clever um I guess, sophisticated divorcees figured out that they could use this to their benefit. In most of the states, once people started piecing that together and the state saw their divorce rate going up because people were taking advantage, they shut it down. There was a lot of shame directed at the state. So Indiana is an example. People just sort of pilloried Indiana because they were allowing these divorces. And Indiana said, "Okay, uncle, we're going to change the law. So we won't allow this anymore. Nevada and a few other states said, um, basically, screw that. We love that people are coming here and spending money. We're going to embrace this, right? And so that's where it really took off. 
states like um, Nevada, Alabama, Florida, they, they embraced that. But it largely came unintentionally. So in these different states that embraced migratory divorce and in a, some sense were almost like, like in almost like a kind of a corporate law kind of market for divorce sense, like looking to attract people, were they all doing it for the same reasons and in the same ways or did they take different approaches for kind of different purposes? They were all the ones that eventually became quite popular, which were Nevada, Alabama, Florida, um, Arkansas, Idaho. They were doing it for the money. They were doing it to generate revenue. Um, Nevada was bringing in, um, let's see, in the early 30, uh, around like 30s, 1940s, like $5 million a year, which was the equivalent of $66 million today. Um, also keep in mind, Nevada... So I haven't explained this very well, but Nevada, remember I said when it started off, it was a six month residency requirement. Well, eventually that would get down to six weeks, which would be the lowest residency requirement we had anywhere in the United States. And that would come in 1931. And if you ask yourself, what else was going on in 1931? We were having the Great Depression and people were trying to recover from that. So that was that was largely what drove it. 1931 is also the year. And at the same time, they reduced it to six weeks that Nevada legalized gambling. Because they thought, okay, if people are going to come here and have to wait six weeks, we need things for them to do. And wouldn't it be great if those things they're doing generate even additional revenue for the state? So I can't think of any reason states did it other than just to um, generate revenue. I guess a secondary reason is once like Nevada started generating a lot of revenue, some of the states just thought we want ours as well. As a matter of fact, the person who introduced the bill in Florida that eventually sort of prompted migratory divorce there said, look, if people are doing it, they, instead of going to Nevada, they should come here and we should make the money. So, so money was the reason. Well, so even as some of these states were sort of competing for the migratory divorce dollars there, it seems like there were organized groups of people on both the local, state, and national level pushing back against that as well. How did they try to accomplish that, and how successful were they, if at all? Yeah, so that's sort of the fascinating things. And one of the what makes this a particularly interesting study historically is the idea of migratory divorce was such a part of the public consciousness at the time. You can see there's tons of movies from that era where that is a a plot point. There's there's plays at the time that revolved around that. Um, one of the things I did, I found a lot of old life magazines where there's full features on what it means to go to Nevada. So people were outraged by this across the country. And today we have a lot of that recorded, you know, in letters to the editor and speeches by politicians. And I incorporated those into the article. And so what they tried to do, well, First, what they tried to do was to, to shame states into changing their ways. And for the most part, that was successful. Most states immediately backed off. But for, the, for states like Nevada and Alabama and Florida, that wasn't working. So there were two primary ways in which those who opposed it tried to change the law. The first was through a constitutional amendment to the United States Constitution that would give Congress the ability to regulate divorce in the United States. And given that we're a mobile society where people could move around and get divorced in different states, an issue migratory divorce revealed, part of that made sense. Maybe Congress should have authority over that. And over the years, they introduced multiple constitutional amendments aimed at divorce. Some of them included other things like polygamy. They were very concerned with polygamy at this time. Um, 
there were some that even referenced interracial marriage. They were concerned about um, perhaps the 14th Amendment being interpreted to require states to permit interracial marriage. And of course, that would happen in Loving v. Virginia. So one of the proposed amendments actually said that uh, states did not have to recognize that. So we had multiple, I forget the exact number in the article, I think it was around 40 constitutional amendments over the years proposed to deal with this, but none of them ever even got to a vote um, in Congress. And the reason, because you can imagine it was very scary, the thought of turning over family relations, an area that states had typically had quite a monopoly on over to the federal government. And also, this is going to permeate both potential solutions that were proposed. To the extent we talked about we were talking about moving toward a, a uniform standard for a divorce, be it through something Congress legislated pursuant to a constitutional amendment or a uniform law, which I'll talk about in a minute. That was going to require some states to have standards they didn't want. Remember I said earlier, South Carolina didn't allow divorce of any kind and New York only allowed it for adultery. Well, once we moved to a uniform standard that presumably would apply to all the states, those strict states were going to have to relax their standards and they really didn't want to do that. So those states opposed anything that was going to be uniform. And of course, states like Nevada and Florida and Alabama opposed it as well. And of course, as we can imagine as lawyers, there were a lot of people who just didn't want the federal government to have that much control vis-a-vis the states. So that was that was one of the ways in which they proposed it. And they recognized at the time that probably wasn't going to happen. They um, There was a a quote from Theodore Roosevelt saying, look, I I know it's really hard to amend the Constitution. So the other route they pursued was uniform legislation. And this is one of the things a lot of people don't um, know is that the Uniform Law Commission came into being largely because there was a call to do something about migratory divorce. So New York actually led the charge of putting together the commission of having states coming together to see if they could come up with some standard that a, a majority of the states would voluntarily adopt that would relate to when they would recognize a divorce and when they would um, grant a divorce. So what the grounds would be. And for reasons I said, similar to the constitutional amendment, the states could not agree. They came up with proposals, but they could never really get a critical mass of states to pass it. But those were the primary ways that in which they were trying to, trying to change this problem that outraged so many. Well, so one of the things I'd never thought about when reading your paper, but seems obvious in retrospect, is the sheer amount of kind of interstate comedy, like choice of law um, type questions that arose and had to be litigated and ultimately decided with relation to which state should be able to control the marital status and why. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of why exactly that arose and, you know, how those kinds of questions ultimately were resolved or maybe not always resolved? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there, what really brought things to a head was, well, because there could be no constitutional amendment, because there was no uniform legislation, it basically fell on the Supreme Court to figure out when a state had to recognize a divorce from another state. And this went on for 70 years in the court. And if you read law reviews written from you know the early 1900s up until about the 1940s, many of them will say the most pressing issue in the United States right now is divorce recognition. So, um, and it's very clear reading the Supreme Court opinions that they didn't know what to do with this. So we have the full faith and credit clause. And the question was whether a state had to give full faith and credit to a divorce decreed in a, in a sister state or whether they it was merely up to them, whether they were going to extend comedy to the, the opinion. 
The Supreme Court went back and forth on this many times. At one point, they had a standard where they basically said, and again, this is arising out of seeing divorce as a state issue, that someone could move to another state, gain residency there, and get a divorce that was valid in that state where they got the divorce, but that was not valid in the state where they had moved from resulting in situations where you had people who were validly married in one state, yet validly divorced in another state, right? So that's when things got really crazy. Eventually, the Supreme Court would back down from that a little bit. And the most famous case is the Williams v. Williams case, where two people moved to Nevada, um, two people who were unrelated moved to Nevada, a man and a woman, but they were both married to other people. They lived there long enough. They got a divorce from their respective spouses, and then they married one another. And they moved back to North Carolina as a couple. And surprise, surprise, they were arrested when they got to North Carolina. For bigamous cohabitation, North Carolina did not recognize the divorce. So the case goes up to the United States Supreme Court, and they said, no, you have to give full faith and credit to a divorce that was validly obtained in Nevada. It seemed finally in 1942, we had some clarity on these issues. So, but North Carolina looked at the opinion and said, oh, they said we have to give full faith and credit to a valid divorce. Let's relitigate whether it was a valid divorce in Nevada, whether Nevada had the right to grant that divorce in the first place. And so they try these people again, who again, all they did was go to another state and get divorced and get remarried and get to marry one another. They tried the case again, and it goes up to, and they convict them again, goes back to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, yes, that's fine, you can do that. So you have to give full faith and credit to a divorce entered by Nevada, but you can relitigate it to make sure that it was validly um, procured, and the fact that you have you found that it wasn't means you can put these people in, in jail. So... That was sort of the the nadir of everything. I mean, you'll pardon me, but that that doesn't sound exactly like full faith and credit to me. <laughs> no, that you can you can then basically relitigate the jurisdiction there and say, okay, we found that it wasn't that it was wanting. Um, so and so those were two different opinions, Williams one and Williams two. Williams one, we thought, oh, we have some clarity finally on how this works. Williams two took all that away. And the dissents were really fun to read in that case where they're basically saying, here we go again. So, um, you know, one thing that always haunted me is what happened to the, the people in Williams. I'm like, did they really have to go to jail? And I found a Life magazine from 1945 where there is a blurb that said, ultimately, North Carolina said they would not make them serve their prison sentences if they would remarry in the state of North Carolina. So they did. So they did that. So, so what did this entire smorgasbord, I guess, or maybe sort of Gordian's not of family law have to say about the relative state authority over marriage and divorce. I mean, on one level, they seem like the yin and yang kind of analogs, but it sounds like in a lot of ways they were treated also in kind of fundamentally different ways. Yeah, they were. And that's one of the things that made it so difficult because what the states were saying, the states that did not want to give full faith and credit is they would say, look, to the extent someone from my state goes to Nevada and gets a divorce and I have to recognize it, that is adjusting the marital status of someone in my state, the person left behind. And I think that I should have control over that, not Nevada. I, I can sympathize with that, with that argument. 
But at the same time, what, what did come from this and what um, ultimately in the paper I say is sort of the interesting legacy is we began to see divorce not as a state issue, but as an individual right, a, a right people take with them. And that has opened up a lot of doors in family law generally, right, to um, what rights people have when it comes vis-a-vis family relationships. And as we've seen in our lifetime, those rights have taken um, on a much more constitutional dimension. Well, so I wonder if you could talk about sort of what happened to migratory divorce. I mean, why is it, you know, if it was something that was seen as such a kind of pressing and fundamental problem for such a long period of time, why is it like almost forgotten today? What what happened? And is, is there any kind of vestigial migratory divorce still in existence? Yeah. So what's interesting about this is what was driving migratory divorce, if you really think about it, is Americans were increasingly wanting divorce. They were embracing divorce. They were living in a society where divorce would work better, meaning gender equality was getting better. Right. So if someone was divorced, they wouldn't necessarily be left high and dry. So people wanted divorce and the states weren't giving it to them. So in a way, people voted with their feet. They're like, I'll go to another jurisdiction. I should be fair here. I should point out that people who were doing this were largely people of means. It would cost money, of course, to go live in Nevada for six weeks. And the average person couldn't do that. But people were voting with their feet. And over time, again, this was very much in the consciousness of um, American citizens. The stigma surrounding divorce started to go down. And people thought, maybe it's not that big a deal. We also started to realize that there are some marriages that are just really bad and people should not be stuck in those marriages. Narratives started to emerge of domestic violence and abandonment and the just the sheer trauma that can result from forcing someone to stay in a marriage. So as people get more accustomed to the idea of divorce not being that bad, states started to become more lenient. So like I said, South Carolina in 1949 started allowing divorce. And North Carolina at some point started permitting other grounds for divorce. The um, watershed moment, though, came in the late 1960s, early 1970s, when California enacted no-fault divorce, which basically says we don't care about marital fault, to the extent one person, to the extent the marriage is broken, this is what we refer today to as irretrievable breakdown or irreconcilable differences. People should be allowed a divorce, and so once California did that, um, other states followed suit. Now all states have no fault divorce, and at that point, it just wasn't as necessary for people to um, move to another state to get divorced. They could do it much more easily in their in their own state. I don't know why people don't talk about it more because I think it's just the most fascinating, cool thing that used to happen. I mean, we had forum shopping on this massive scale that was taking place. And um, yeah, there's many quotes of people saying, oh, this is now you know relegated to the, the trash piles of history and, and people don't talk about it. But <clears throat> I, I will tell you, it, it's taken me a while to write the piece because I've always wanted to write about it. But you can't just write a piece that says, hey, look at this cool thing that once happened. But the more I thought about it, the the more I realized that it does exist in many ways today. We see sort of the impact in various ways in which, like I said earlier, the increasing um, personal rights afforded um, family members, the constitutional dimensions of those. Full faith and credit, we think much differently about that today. Um, uniform laws have taken on a bigger role in in family relations, and that that 
that was, of course, born with migratory divorce. Um, so, so yeah, so it lives on in those ways, but in, in other ways, no, it, it's gone. And I hope if nothing else from the article, people just start thinking about it, talking about it more. So I wonder, I mean, if you see some echo of my, migratory divorce or the kinds of kind of underlying underlying philosophical and normative debates that motivated the kind of migratory divorce phenomenon resonating in this sort of increasing and kind of rapidly recently increasing liberalization of uh, family law in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Yeah, we could to some extent. I think we would probably more likely see it in the realm of marriage creation. Obviously, we saw that as certain states started to legalize same-sex marriage, couples started going there and getting married and then coming home to their states, hoping that that would be recognized. And again, that was a question under full faith and credit. Um, Where I think we might see it today is as it relates to parental rights, because in the wake of Obergefell, we know that same-sex couples are to be afforded marriage equality, which we know encompasses the ability to get a marriage license, but where a lot of states are um, diverging and debating is the idea of parenthood, particularly for same-sex couples, but also for couples who have children via artificial insemination. To the extent states start viewing, have different standards there, that could create some sense of migration for people who want to have a better sense of um, rights and protections in one state over the other. Um, in terms of divorce, I don't really, I don't know that we'll see much of that. Another hot button issue, of course, is cohabitants' rights. That is a, a lot of legal scholars are talking about the, that today. And some states are much more protective of that than others. So that could produce some sense of migration, but um, that would sort of require people to be sophisticated enough to, to realize the need to do that. And that may or may not be present. I, I haven't studied it enough to know. More broadly, do you think from your perspective that studying the kind of history and legal developments in the history of migratory divorce help kind of illuminate or help you better understand in kind of historical context some of the conversations and debates we're having today in family law? Yes, absolutely. And I think the one that was most, that resonated the most with me is I really realized looking at migratory divorce that to the extent state laws for families become outdated or out of sync with what people are currently demanding, people are going to find a way around that or they're going to respond in a way that to basically get the rights they want. So, for example, with migratory divorce, people couldn't get divorces, so they sought them out elsewhere, right? And eventually that led to a self-correction through no-fault divorce. Another example I thought of was prenuptial agreements. So in the early 1970s, states didn't want to enforce those because they thought, this is just going to encourage people to get divorced and we don't like that. So we started to see rates of people go up of not getting married. They're like, well, screw it. If I can't have a contract that lays out my obligations and rights upon divorce, I just won't get married. States didn't like that. So there's a self-correction where they say, okay, our bad. You can do prenuptial agreements and that's going to be fine. Um, same-sex marriage again, right? There were all these people who wanted same-sex marriage. It was denied for a while. Eventually there's a self-correction. 
But the more interesting point to me is that the, is that the people who live in before the self-correction, right? So the people who could not get divorces in the 30s and 40s in their states and didn't have the means to go travel and get one somewhere else, or the people who um, were in essence screwed because they had a prenuptial agreement that wasn't enforced, or the people whose relationships ended either through death or dissolution prior to same-sex marriage being legalized. Those are real salient harms that family law has to think about. So perhaps we should be more mindful of how we're evolving and make sure that it it doesn't take you know decades of people finding a way around the law before the law actually catches up and changes. Yeah, you had a quotation in the paper, well, one of many that I really like, but there was one in particular, I think it was from a Nevada official, but I could be wrong. And he said something along the lines of the the law can't change human nature. So we're just trying to change the law to be more like human nature. Yeah, exactly. I think that was a sheriff who was in, he was visiting another state and some journalist accosted him. He's like, how can you justify living in a state that does this awful thing? And, and you're right. He's like, look, this is human nature and we're just, we're just giving people what they want. I'm not sure that's what motivated Nevadans to do that. I think it was the money, but I think he was right. I mean, people, people weren't trying to get divorces to be mean. I mean, they wanted out of these relationships and, you know, today we would view that as understandable, but at the time back then it was just, it was, it was, it was terrible. So. Well, Michael, it's been great talking to you about this fascinating and really, you know, amusing and well-written and, you know, just all around great article. And I, I can only hope that other scholars pick up on some of the threads that you started spinning in this one um, and see where they go. Uh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to, to be a part of this. It's been a pleasure to talk about it. I love talking about this stuff. So um, thank you, Brian. Thank you for your kind words and your support. When you be feeling blue, 
You'll find that you can't pay your bills with the little old IOU. That dynamite you're playing with may be TNT. So if you want your freedom, PDQ, divorce me, COD, no need to fall down on your knees. Cause I know all my ABC. Well, I ain't no college professor, ain't got no PhD. So if you want your freedom, PDQ, divorce me, COD, no alimony, divorce me, COD. (laughs) 